Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll have comments from the state's health director about the latest COVID situation in Ohio. I'll talk to the head of a national youth organization with chapters across Ohio that helps kids make better decisions in life. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend looks at topics that include a bill to reduce regulations for people carrying concealed weapons that is awaiting Governor Mike DeWine's signature. An effort to temporarily repeal the state's gas tax and a move by students and others in Ohio to increase penalties for distracted driving. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families in Columbus. First up on Columbus Perspective, on Thursday of this week, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, provided an update on the coronavirus and had good news for the state of Ohio. We're just running about three minutes of it. Here's Dr. Vanderhoff. Well, as the days and weeks pass, it becomes increasingly clear that not only are we leaving the Omicron surge behind us, but we're entering a new phase of our experience with COVID-19. Case numbers and community transmission have continued to drop steadily, as have hospitalizations. At one point in January, Ohio had more than 2,200 cases per 100,000 residents. Now our state average stands at 78. That's the lowest level we've seen since August. Similarly, while just two months ago, our hospitalizations were topping 6,000 people. Today, fewer than 800 are hospitalized with the virus. Now, many communities, schools, and businesses have responded to these changes by relaxing masking and social distancing and other restrictions. Maybe you've allowed yourself a sigh of relief, and understandably so. The situation is improving, and our experience with COVID-19 is evolving from that of a pandemic to more of an endemic state. Reflecting these new realities, beginning on Monday, the state of Ohio will shift its reporting of COVID-19 data from a daily to a weekly cadence. In fact, Ohio has been one of only a handful of states still reporting COVID-19 data daily. Cases, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, vaccinations, which are all currently reported daily, along with deaths, which are reported twice weekly, will be reported each Thursday on our dashboard at coronavirus.ohio.gov. Likewise, data from our long-term care facilities and our partner agencies will also move to weekly postings. Now, all the same information will still be found on our dashboards. The only change will be the frequency of our updates. Now, even with this change, our state team will continue to monitor the trajectory of COVID-19 very closely. We'll continue to update our data and we will continue to have close surveillance to help us monitor COVID-19 activity and to identify pockets of higher spread so we can work with local communities on timely responses as needed. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, Director of the Ohio Department of Health from Thursday of this week.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is Rick Burt, who is the president of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. How are you? Hey, great. How are you, sir? Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. We've talked to you a couple of times in the past. Uh, first, tell us about yeah. SAD. Yeah, Students Against Destructive Decisions. Many of our listeners might remember us as Students Against Driving Drunk as an organization that's been around for four decades, working in the space of traffic safety. But now we've changed the name Uh, and change the focus, really at the request of our students, to focus on uh, not only traffic safety, but substance use, mental health, leadership development, all the risks and pressures that young people feel in their lives, while providing resources to parents and communities to make sure that young people can achieve the bright future that they so deserve. And this is a national organization, but it's kind of neat. You were an Ohio kid who got involved in it, right? That's that's right. I'm a Buckeye through and through. Uh, we It was started in the suburbs of, of uh, Boston, actually, back in 1981, but now it is a national network, just as you said. We've got about 8,000 chapters across the country, and about 120 of those are active across the state of Ohio. Uh, and I got involved, grew up in Springfield, was a sad kid in high school, remained active in college, uh, graduated from Wittenberg, go Tigers, uh, worked, worked for a couple of nonprofits before coming back to SAD to hold various positions, and now it's an honor each and every day to to lead this organization and work with students coast-to-coast to help them make better choices and help their friends make safer choices, too. So we're getting into a truly transitional period more than ever now, I think, because first it's uh, springtime is arriving, which is always uh, yeah. a ramp up of activity. But the pandemic seems to be waning a bit. There's going to be more activity than there's been in a while. And the time change just happened uh, hours ago. Yeah, there's lots of, lots of things that are happening, and it, it really does become a, a dangerous season for young people, especially, as you mentioned, the time changing. Uh, one of the things we found is that car crashes actually spike during daylight savings times and that, that transition, mostly because of what we call drowsy driving, when drivers get behind the wheel and they're impaired, not by alcohol or, or other substances, but actually by just a lack of sleep. It puts themselves and other motorists at risk causes an increase in crashes. And so that's why Ohio SAD is working with the Ohio Department of Public Safety to get a message out to teens and parents alike to make sure that as they're changing their clocks, if anyone actually still changes their clocks anymore, but as they're thinking about that time change, to make it a priority to talk with their young person about getting enough sleep and working to prevent drowsy driving. So in addition to things like this being on this program, what are some of the ways that you're trying to get that word out? www.sad.org, you'll see several resources that we've created. First of all, a sleep planning guide. Uh, so it's one of the things we've heard from young people is that it's so hard to figure out how to get those 8 to 10 hours of sleep that the National Institutes of Health say that young people actually need. I think that's because we as a society always take sleep as the thing to cut, right? You know, we've got to stay up late doing homework. We've got to stay up late at work for our parents. Uh, Whatever it is, we have to get up early to go to work. We have to get up early to go to school. And so really what we do is we take whatever's left, and that's how much sleep we get. We're challenging folks, especially during this this observance of National Sleep Week and National Sleep Awareness Week, to do a a flip on that. Let's first chart out how do we get those 8 to 10 hours and then build our schedules around that in kind of the opposite direction. That makes sure that we get enough sleep. But also, uh, you know, our resources also contain a discussion guide for parents on how to talk with their teens about this subject, pun intended, without putting them to sleep. Uh, several of those key pieces in- include, you know, starting with uh, some homework planning, making sure that we're setting aside some time to really be focused on homework, making sure that we're disconnecting from our electronics, 
uh, particularly right before we go to bed, I think we've all been guilty of maybe laying there in bed trying to fall asleep, but also scrolling through our social media, reading an email, uh, reading the news, watching some videos. All of those things are contrary to actually getting the sleep that we need because our technology is literally designed to stimulate the brain. And so it's very hard to turn that off literally with our mind once we, we plug that phone back in or plug that, that, that iPad back in then try to go to sleep. So several resources we encourage folks to check out on our website uh, and surely start the dialogue right now and then talk about changing habits for the better. The distraction for kids these days, you know, I'm going to kind of age myself here, but I was a, a, a radio nerd as a kid and used to listen to Larry King when he was on overnight on radio, Yeah. late at night in bed on a school night listening to him. And uh, with today's distractions, with tablets and you know a million channels on television i don't know how kids yeah. do it anymore yeah it's true it's it's not just those things you mentioned but it's also just the, the constant reel of social media tiktoks instagram snapchat I, we did a study with liberty mutual and we found that 68 percent of parents admitting to not knowing how many hours of sleep their team were actually getting a night i think so oftentimes you know Kids get home, we send them upstairs after dinner to do their homework, and we kind of just check on them a couple times. But we're not really sure when they go to bed. And so I think it's worth having a conversation, not only about eliminating those distractions, but you know, how many hours of sleep are you getting uh, as a young person? And parents asking that question in an earnest way, but then also, like so many other things, making sure they model that same con- they model that same behavior. I think we have a, a culture that really values, you know, the work grind, and we value the people that send emails at eleven o'clock at night. Ah, they're so dedicated. They're so they're so you know really in, in it to win it. But what that what we've found in our research is when we don't value sleep, it really does affect our physical and our mental health. And I think now more than ever, in the wake of the pandemic. We're seeing one in four high school students across the state of Ohio are sharing that they're having a diagnosable mental health condition. So there has never been a more important time to have a conversation about mental health. And one of the first things that any mental health care provider is going to ask is about sleep. Because during that that slumber is when your body repairs itself, the mind quiets itself, the brain literally repairs neurons and, and brain pathfinders. So sleep is not a luxury. It's actually a fundamental foundation of health And if we want to have a conversation in this country about physical health, eliminating obesity, decreasing blood pressure, and also a conversation about mental health, it's going to start with sleep. Talking with Rick Burt, president of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. You know, before the pandemic, a few years ago, there was a push beginning to start school, especially maybe for uh, high school kids later in the morning, because it's just not conducive for them to get up that early and and try to study. What, What was your take on that? Well, I, you know, I served as a school board member uh, in, spring, in the suburbs around Springfield for about six years, and this was something that even, you know, a decade ago, schools in Ohio were talking about, but it really did pick up momentum, as you said. And one of the things I saw as a school board member is that the logistics are really hard, and I, I understand that. You have after-school athletics, you have, you know, other commitments that are really only work if you have your high school students start sooner. But I think we have to take the conversation from logistics and, to, and put it to health. Uh, every study I have seen from major universities to government agencies shows us that the teen brain doesn't actually really start functioning until about 9 a.m. So what we're doing is we're, we're doing something that's contrary to our natural body's rhythm. As, as a young person goes through adolescence and puberty, the brain is literally designing itself to start its day earlier. 
On the contrary, research shows us that younger kiddos are more, are more predispositioned to start earlier in the day. So really what we should do is kind of the opposite of what we've done as a society, have our primary even our secondary schools start earlier and our high school students start later. Uh, research has shown in schools and communities across the country that have done that, an increase in test scores, a decrease in uh, school violence, in behavioral issues, uh, a decrease in obviously drowsy driving crashes. There's just a lot of things that make it make sense, but I, I understand that so much of the conversation is really driven by the logistics of, hey, how do we have you know, uh, a high school basketball game if our kids aren't out of school until 4 o'clock. I, I challenge decision makers, school boards, PTAs, anyone that's having that conversation, have that conversation with your community because it could provide not only a valuable uh, plug to your, to your school and to your teens, but could literally save lives and improve the health and safety of your young people. They really are complicated issues, though, because, you know, then you get transportation issues for school districts. Exactly. And, and there's also yeah. moves toward... Uh, year-round school with, you know, just breaks here and there rather than the, you know, bulk of the summer off, which maybe could make just the general tone of school a little bit less strenuous and intense. Yeah, I mean, there's there's also research to support that as well, where, you know, again, a, a teen brain is, is, a, is, a, is best when it's engaged, and that taking of two to three months off in the summer, it, it's based on, you know, an agricultural calendar, from you know, really the 1800s. Right. And I think we could all agree that things have really changed, uh, not only in the last two years, but certainly since the 1800s. And so I think it's a conversation worth having. You know, SAD certainly understands that every school and every community has different needs. There are building and facility considerations to take into account. Obviously, we want teachers to feel recharged and we want to support our educators and the work that they're doing. But certainly a conversation that's worth consideration uh, and certainly some research to back it up too. Just a couple of moments to go here. I did, too, want to ask you about, you know, as we head toward the warmer months, uh, that's when accidents really tick up for uh, teen drivers and uh, yeah. get to the, what is it, the 100 days in the summertime that are it is. really the highest risk. Yeah. And distracted driving uh, with texting and all that is a big part of it, it seems like. It's true. We're coming up on a, a busy season for a couple of those behaviors that you mentioned. April is National Distracted Driving Awareness Month, so we're going to be having national campaigns and events happening across the state of Ohio, particularly tied to our Text Less, Live More program. Uh, and I encourage folks to check that out on our website. It's a little bit of a different take on distracted driving, where we don't just talk about the distractions behind the wheel, but we talk about the underlying issue of what we call digital dependency. When you do a national survey, uh, you know, I bet even our listeners right now could, could, without even thinking, know where their phones are, know where their electronics are. It's because we're an addicted society. We're especially addicted to our electronics after the past two years. So it's really no surprise to me that we're seeing distracted driving-related crashes uh, be on the rise because we're literally always tethered to our phone, again, because our apps and our phones are designed to be addicting. That, that notification that we get, that response, that ding, all, pre, all, all is programmed in our brain to release endorphins. So there's actually a biology and a chemistry behind what's happening. So we're trying to start the conversation not just about you know, eliminating distractions in the car, but really trying to reprogram our brains to text less and live more, just as the program says, by getting outside, by being active, by being present when we're with our friends and family. So that's one, thing, one of the things we're trying to do. And then certainly talking about 
the 100 deadliest days is, is absolutely critical. We partner with the National Road Safety Foundation, one of the nation's leading organizations that's working on a multitude of traffic safety-related issues to talk about things like pedestrian and bike safety, which is up almost 10% across the country. And by that, I mean we're seeing a rise in, in deaths and injuries by people who are walking and they're biking, uh, particularly in, in post-pandemic. So we need to talk about how to be a safe pedestrian and how to be a safe bicyclist, particularly for you know areas of rural Ohio who may not where, may not have sidewalks or good places to to, to bike. All, being aware of that as a as a driver is absolutely key. And then also continuing the conversation about things like uh, being uh, an engaged driver, not being distracted behind the wheel, wearing our seatbelt not driving impaired. All of those messages are, are absolutely key, and we're working with NRSF to share them. And one resource I'd mention real quick is our Passport to Safe Driving, a resource we developed for parents and teens with the National Road Safety Foundation. You can find this on our website. It's a guide that looks at some of the leading causes of teen crashes and provides talking points and some training expertise for parents to help their teen navigate those strange waters, help them figure out, you know, why... Uh, what can we do to, to better prepare our young people to face left-hand turns? What do you do when someone's tailgating you? How do you stay focused on the road? How do you follow the state's graduated driver's licensing laws? All that and more is on our website, and we're so thankful for NRSF and their support to help make this possible. Driving today, it's it's interesting because especially when I'm on a city street where it's 25 or 35 miles an hour, I find myself yeah. studying the driver behind me through my mirror because if I see yeah. any indication that they're on their phone or, you know, just not, not paying attention, I get off the road and let them get around me. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, you know, I think what's happened, and, and you know, this is, this is Rick speaking without any sort of research to back this up. I feel like people have gotten angrier during the pandemic. I think we have lost some patience. I think we've, you know, certainly we're not driving as much. And so I think like, like any skill, when you don't use it, you lose it. And so it's no wonder, I mean, when you, look, when you look at the data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, last year was one of the deadliest years on our roadways. We saw spikes like we haven't seen in some cases since you know, literally the 90s. And think of all the changes in technology, all the advances that have been made in public health programs, the education that had taken place. And, and I think what's happened is exactly what you're describing. You know, people are getting behind the wheel. They haven't been driving as much or they're just more anxious. Uh, again, our, our mental health, I think, across the age spectrum and across the country has really deteriorated. And so we're, we're, we've lost a little bit of empathy and patience, and so we take that out in one of the only ways we can, and that's behind the wheel. And so it creates a, a really, really dangerous situation, but I'm so glad you, you mentioned and, and brought up being a defensive driver. So that's one of the best countermeasures that you can deploy is to you know, be engaged and, and be aware of your surroundings. That's really how you keep yourself safe. Talking with Rick Burt, he's the president of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up, Rick? Uh, one other thing I, I just mentioned, uh, we've released also some new resources uh, about the situation in Ukraine. And you may say, well, why is SAD talking about foreign affairs. Well, what we've seen is that an overwhelming majority of teens who are already struggling with mental health are also struggling with some anxiety around what's happening in Ukraine and how that might affect them. You know, we've heard on the news from pugnants and, and commentators, things like World War III, nuclear war, things that are you know, really scary, particularly as you see the effects it's having at home on you know, families with gas prices, supply chain issues. So we've also released some resources there that, for parents on how to have a conversation with their teen about Ukraine. 
how to talk about and ease some of those fears, not to push them aside, but to have a real dialogue about the, the pressures maybe even that parents are feeling and to set some healthy boundaries and expectations uh, around, you know, what is safety and how can we keep each other safe during this time of great unknown and great anxiety. Uh, again, going back to mental health. So I also encourage folks to check out those resources and much more on our website, www.sadd.org or uh, ohsadd.org. Great resources on both those pages. And also to follow us on social media, Sad Nation. Uh, we keep tons of information on our social media channels, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You name it, we've got it. All right. Rick Burt, again, he's the president and CEO of Sad. Thanks so much for your time today. Good luck. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Ohio's U.S. senators speak out in support of Ukraine. And there's a push in the statehouse to bring some relief to you at the pump. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Ohio lawmakers passed a bill that would allow anyone 21 and older to conceal carry without a permit or training. 10TV's Lacey Crisp has reaction from both sides of this controversial issue. Should training be required if you're going to carry a concealed weapon in the state of Ohio? A bill passed in the state legislature would create a constitutional carry or you would be able to carry concealed without a permit. But it would simply eliminate um, the, the need or the regulation for someone to have to go through an eight-hour class in Ohio in order to be able to carry concealed in Ohio. It's the non-training aspect of it. That is, I think, the, the killer for me. Jacqueline Kassemeyer's son was shot and killed. The shooters stole dozens of guns. My son was an advocate. He had his license. He was a gun collector. I personally have never even shot a gun. But guess what? I'm going to learn how to shoot a gun because it's going to be the wild, I feel for Wild Wild West. But after seeing what happened in 2020 and also in 2021, with a lot of the riots and the other unrest around the country, I think that people started to realize why we wanted this and why uh, Ohioans shouldn't have to get a license in order to carry or protect themselves. Gun rights advocates argue the right to carry, with no mention of training, was written into the Constitution and should be law. There are 21 states that have constitutional carry. Not a single one of them has tried to reverse this law. Uh, it's worked reasonably well in every single state, despite all the predictions. So we think it's going to work here, too. The governor has not said whether or not he'll sign the bill, but a spokesperson for Mike DeWine says the governor has always supported Second Amendment rights. Our take on it is even if somebody is proficient with firearms, there's a huge part of that. If you choose to carry a firearm, a huge part of that goes back to the laws and knowing the law. And so this will really put that onus back on those individuals. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 
10 TV News. Georgia might soon join the list. The Senate there recently passed a constitutional carry bill. It moves to the House, and the governor of Georgia supports the bill. The Ukraine flag is flying at the Ohio State House as a show of support, and it will stay there until further notice. Governor Mike DeWine banned the purchase of Russian goods and services. He doesn't want the state to have contracts with Russian businesses, and he says Ohio taxpayer dollars will not support Russia. Both Ohio senators condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But I find there's no lack of resolve right now from this Congress in its support for Ukraine and their people. They're people who are just choosing a democratic and free future, free from tyranny. The Ukrainian dream is now under attack by a brutal dictator who wants to remake Europe and disrupt the international order that has kept the peace for nearly 80 years. It's time for this Congress to speak with one voice. Putin is not a rational man, and we, this, is, this is going to end badly for him. There's no way this doesn't end badly for him, even if he... If he quote-unquote, captures all of Ukraine, um, it's not going to pay off in the end for him. Um, he's going to lose a huge amount of his wealth. He's going to lose support. He's already losing support among Russian people who don't understand why they're sending soldiers to capture another country. Um, but he's a dictator. He's an autocrat. He's a madman. And he's not rational. So um, we, don't, we don't know how it ends, um, how we get him to stop. But we do know that it will end badly for him. We're getting more perspective from those tied to the Russian-American community. If there's one simple message, it's this. Separate the people from the politics. 10TV's Brittany Bailey reports. If I'm being completely honest, I thought it was all a bluff at first. That was Alex Grossman's first reaction to the warnings that Vladimir Putin planned to invade Ukraine. But the OSU students soon learned, like the rest of us, those were not empty threats. I was convinced there would be no way Putin would have the true intentions of invading Ukraine. But seeing this tragedy play out, I mean, it's very shocking to hear and it's very devastating, especially considering myself and a lot of other members and officers of the club still have family in Ukraine. That club is the OSU Russian Student Association. Grossman joined to connect with his culture and roots. His family is Ukrainian, but he grew up speaking Russian, and he's a first-generation college student. Just because someone is Russian or Russian-American, they're by no means in support of this horrific invasion. In fact, the fact that they are in this country in the first place probably shows that they are against such Russian politics in the first place because they understand what it's like to be a victim of the Russian state. He says that's an important message to spread, especially in light of recent threats against businesses with Russian ties. We told you earlier this week about the threatening phone calls to Diana Deli in Columbus near Worthington. For anyone believing that being Russian or Russian-American equates to supporting this invasion, I would say that is a completely false connection to make. In fact, he and other members of the Russian Student Association recently joined in to support the Ukrainian Society bake sale on campus. We all stand in solidarity with Ukraine, and we hope to continue spreading awareness and doing what we can to continue raising charity and the necessary aid to send to Ukraine. And again, that was Brittany Bailey reporting. Alex Grossman says he and other student members of the organization stand ready to support the Ukrainian society again with any other future fundraising. People across the world are sending supplies and money to the war-torn country. But before sending resources to Ukraine, please, you'll want to make sure that your dollars are going to legitimate organizations and people. Consumer 10 reached out to the Ohio Better Business Bureau for some tips on protecting yourself.
even if it's a well-known name, that you see a link on social media or through email, uh, don't follow the link. Go to the site independent of the link um, because that could be a fake uh, link that goes to a fake site uh, that just looks a lot like uh, the one that they're portraying that is a real site. So don't follow the links. Go to that independent um, website on your own. And if you are still unsure, you can always check the list of trusted sources on the Better Business Bureau website. We are seeing drastic increases in the price of gas, in part because of the war in Ukraine. A new bill in the Ohio Senate is aimed at cutting down on the price at the pump. It would also eliminate special registration fees for hybrid and electric vehicle owners for the next five years. This week, I talked with State Senator Steve Huffman, who is sponsoring the bill. Gas tax increase, which this bill would repeal for five years only, and that would go back, would only generate about $1.5 billion. We're getting... $10 billion more than we estimate that we needed uh, to build roads, bridges, and highways. And so that's what it's based on. And, you know, gas is up over a dollar in the last year and maybe even 30 cents over last night. Um, And and if we can give that back to the people and let them decide how to to spend it. If you're uh, working in a factory or a waitress and you're making $25,000, $30,000, an extra $10 or $15 a week in gas is, is difficult. Um, and, and so, you know, to give them a, a, a little bit of relief is going to help a lot of people. And, and certainly it, would, it will stir the economy that they'll go out and buy other things and do other things with their money. The bill could face opposition from Governor DeWine, who pushed for higher gas taxes back in 2019. He says the money is better used for road projects. The governor met with Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir to talk about one major road project. They pledged to seek federal funding for the Brent Spence Bridge Project. That bridge is one of the most heavily traveled in the nation. It's in need of an upgrade to stop the bottleneck of traffic between Ohio and Kentucky. The governors agree the answer is a companion bridge. I don't have to tell anybody in this room the importance uh, of the bridge, the traffic jams that occur around the bridge, and the need for an alternative to the bridge. I think we all we all understand that. Governor Bashir says the bridge carries twice the amount of vehicles it was designed to accommodate. The funding for that companion bridge will come from the bipartisan infrastructure plan. Distracted driving is a dangerous problem in Ohio. Up next, students sound off on a bill that could have a big impact on them. Plus, the daughter of a woman doused with gasoline and set on fire is pushing for tougher laws to defend domestic abuse survivors. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. There is a new bill in the Ohio House that would allow officers to pull you over if you are caught texting while you're driving. We first reported on House Bill 283 last month, and one group of high school students was paying attention. 10TV's Richard Solomon shares why these students say it doesn't matter how old you are to do what's right. This is my real one, my real poster, and then I made this one. The mark we leave on others can sometimes be everlasting. They did a good job with this one. The walls of Madison Plains High School are covered with reminders of a real danger. Senior Riley Davis and sophomore Emily Legault hope the mark they leave 
will be a road that's often traveled. Don't look at your phone because that split second that you're looking away from it, some, you can like hit someone, someone can hit you. The two say they didn't think how distracted by a phone they were while driving. Like the first like two weeks, I know I was like focused, but then after a while I was like, I know how to drive, it's fine. But a lesson by their teacher, Kimberly Jarvis, changed their minds. The number one leading cause of death for teenagers. A lot of students feel invincible. They don't feel that this is important. Thus, the birth of a project geared towards ending distracted driving. Students started a petition at their school advocating for the passing of House Bill 283. The bill would ban holding a phone while behind the wheel if you're older than 18. Regardless of the age, they say it's needed. They've gained more than 40 signatures in a school that has nearly 400 students in one day. In April, the students plan to host a themed week on the dangers of distracted driving. It says that they're really looking at their lives and they're really understanding. Understanding what safe driving is. Lieutenant Merrill Thompson, the post commander for the West Jefferson, Ohio State Highway Patrol, echoes their work. When a student or a young person knows it's a problem, it's always going to be in the back of their mind because they know it's a problem. It's only the beginning. The two hope they're paving a way many will follow. It has more of an impact coming from an actual student and not more of a teacher or like a parent. Coming from like someone more their age, I feel like it's more beneficial. In Madison County, Richard Solomon, 10TV News. Our colleague and friend Dom Tiberi is pushing for that bill to be passed. He testified this week before lawmakers urging them to do just that. In 2013, Dom lost his daughter Maria in a distracted driving crash and says he doesn't want anyone else to have to go through that experience. You know, I, I, I consider myself a tough guy, but I will tell you guys, I went into that hospital to identify my daughter. And I walked in and out of that room and I could not believe I was leaving her. I would not wish that on my worst enemy. I have dreams, nightmares, and I just can't get that out of my head that I was leaving her. And I don't want that for anyone else. I'm here today out of love. This bill will save lives. People will obey the law. Vote your consciences. But I'm telling you, we have got to end this madness. As parents and grandparents, we should be outraged that the leading killer of our children in the United States of America is car crashes. This bill will save lives. Through Maria's message, named in honor of his late daughter, Dom teaches young drivers the dangers of distracted driving. To learn more about the program, go to 10tv.com slash Maria's message. A young woman who watched her mother suffer for years is now pushing for tougher laws to defend domestic abuse survivors. We want to warn you that some of this next story could be hard to watch. Back in 2015, Julie Malinowski was doused in gasoline by her ex-boyfriend and set on fire. She suffered for nearly two years before succumbing to her injuries. After that, Judy's law was enacted, increasing the penalty for any domestic abuser who uses an accelerant. Well, now several students are working together to make Judy's law even stronger. And this effort is being led by Judy Malinowski's own daughter. 10TV's Brittany Bailey shares this teenager's mission for her mom. 
Hello, Mr. Chairman and Senate Committee. My name is Kaylin Malinowski. I am Judy's daughter. This is how many of us remember Kaylin Malinowski. Please pass my mom's law. It was 2017 and she was just 13 years old, bravely testifying before state lawmakers, pleading for the passage of Judy's law. It was like nerve wracking because I was like doing something that was going to make an impact later on. And it did. She and her younger sister Madison were right by the governor's side when he signed Judy's law. And the following year, she also was front and center when her mother's killer took a plea deal, allowing him to avoid the death penalty. But looking back at that one incident, um, I was just upset that he was able to carry on the parent-child relationship and I wasn't. But that wasn't the courtroom moment that left the most lasting impact. Instead, it was when she heard her mother's recorded testimony for the first time months after she had died. I thought for sure I was dying. I just prayed to Jesus to please forgive me for my sins and to take care of my children. And Kaylin heard her mother's voice again at the same time as everyone else in the courtroom. Like I knew it was serious, but it made me realized that it was like even more serious than I already thought it was and it made me like just still be in awe that like she had the courage to stand up after that happened and like tell everybody what happened. Now this 17 year old is summoning up her own courage to follow in her mother's footsteps. She wants to find a way to better protect others from domestic violence. Like that was like a huge part of my life and like it like defines who I am today. So I admire her strength and I definitely like hope that that strength lives on through me. Pretty sure it does. <laughs> do you feel that? I feel like it does. Yeah. Like, cause I have courage to do certain things that like, if it didn't happen, I probably wouldn't necessarily do. Now, Kaylin is working on a class project to try to expand Judy's law. The students want nine years to be tacked onto a sentence instead of six, and they want it to apply to not just attackers who use an accelerant. I'm really excited to be part of this team and push it. I think that if there's more, like the laws are more broad, then people will be able to feel more comfortable reporting it. Kaylin is strong and determined, but she's also still a teenager, well aware of what she's missing and of her mother's unfulfilled dreams. Thinking about it, there's like so many things that like she's going to miss. I mean, like graduation is like 90 something days away. So like that's just crazy that like she's not going to be there for that. She may not be here, but her legacy most certainly is carried on in this daughter's mission for her mother. I would hope that she was proud um, and I think that she would just like be glad that I was continuing to stick up for what was right. Brittany Bailey, 10TV News. Kaylin and her classmates hope to persuade lawmakers to take up their cause. They've been in contact with a few, including State Representative Mary Lightbody. Kaylin and her group seem to think that increasing the penalty will increase the uh, deterrent level. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I think that People's emotions get tied up so tightly in these things that sometimes they're not able to control themselves in the moment. And um, I would wish that a law change would help. But, you know, it, it, I think we need to work on mental health issues as well. Representative Lightbody does say she plans to work with the students and help them through the process. Ohio lawmakers are taking a close look at short-term rentals. We'll break down a bill that aims to limit the power municipalities have over Airbnbs. 
How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. A bill in the House aims to limit the power municipalities have over rental properties like Airbnbs. 10TV's Olivia Eugenio spoke with several short-term property owners about the market here in Columbus. Three Airbnb owners, all with very different backgrounds. I personally have two Airbnbs. I own three Airbnbs of my own, but I operate slash manage another 47. About 100. One thing they do have in common, their satisfaction with owning short-term rentals in central Ohio. Financial benefits, obviously, are a benefit of having an Airbnb as well as just running your own small business. I wanted to quit my corporate job, didn't like the fact that I had to wear a suit every single day. This is a map from AirDNA, a research site that looks at data from Airbnb. You can see the more than 1,600 short-term rental properties across central Ohio. In the last quarter, AirDNA says the market grew by 7%. You know, Ohio State, nationwide, you know, all of the hospitals, uh, you know, bring a huge amount of people that are transients, right? They're staying for short term. So how are short-term rentals regulated? In July of 2018, Columbus City Council passed an ordinance requiring background checks for short-term rental hosts. In 2019, the ordinance was updated to add reassessing short-term rental regulations every two years. Those with short-term rentals say they've had very few issues since owning their properties. It really starts in the, uh, you know, the inquiry process, you know, and even really before you accept the guest, uh, you know, you know, just asking screening questions, you know, how many guests are you bringing? Will you have any guests? You know, why are you here? AirDNA says the average cost of a rental per night is $143. Olivia Eugenio, 10TV News. Columbus police tell us they do not track crime data specific to Airbnb and other short-term rental properties. They say they do not have any policy specific to short-term rentals as they are private businesses. This week, U.S. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty spoke with Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson about her upcoming Supreme Court confirmation hearings. She's the first black woman chosen to serve on the nation's highest court, and she is the former clerk to retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. I talked with Congresswoman Beatty earlier to get her thoughts on the nomination. This is someone who has multiple decades of experience in the judiciary as a jurist. So this isn't someone that just appeared and said, uh, because I am female and because I am a Black American, I want to be there. I put her qualifications up against anyone. We thank you all for joining us today here on Face the State. Have a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, 
We are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone, he's back again and reminded me just moments ago that he was born ready. It's uh, Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How you doing, Dwayne? Dave, you are aware I meant that in reference to you. <laughs> it's in comparison. <laughs> I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for uh, talking to us again today. Tell us what Directions for Youth and Families is. Big uh, agency, and you've been around forever. Yeah, through mergers and everything. Are actually, uh, we started uh, in 1899, um, if you really want to take our history all the way back. so um, And I've been here since I came in 1990. It's been a long time. Long journey. And the last time we talked to you, I just wanted to get a quick update. You, were, you talked to us uh, last time in detail about this big project going on over on the east side of town.
And if people want more information about that or if they want to help, how can they go about doing that? Uh, they can just go to our website, www.dfyf.org. Uh, we're still trying to raise the remaining funds. You know, what happened was we actually had what we needed while we were at 6.2 of a $6.6 million campaign. But in the summer, we had to rerun our numbers because of COVID. You know, there's no steel, there's no lumber, there's uh, no laborers. So all those costs went up and our costs jumped up to 8.8 million, actually 8.9, uh, which was just heartbreaking. So um, there was discussion about delaying the project, but we can't do this. This community has waited too long. It just meant Dwayne has to get off his butt and start pushing forward and raise the rest of the money. So uh, that's when we launched the whole social justice uh, tree and our Rooted in Change initiative. And if you go to our website, you can see that any gift is a great gift. None of it is too small. But we are moving forward to work with this community and really bring much-needed services uh, uh, to a community that is just void of any resources. So that's where we're at. It's it's, a... one of the uh, uh, most challenging things that we've taken on as an organization, but um, we are ready, and so is that community. It's again out near the Eastland Mall area. Talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. You mentioned uh, the great need, and before we rolled tape, we were talking about how everything in the country is still reeling from the pandemic and, and also trying to figure out how to recover from it if we are in recovery mode, because we don't even necessarily know that yet. Right. And uh, and it's just, you know, labor shortages, supply shortages. It's it's really chaotic. Even, um, you know, I, I, I uh, serve on the Human Service Chamber Board, and we cannot have a discussion without talking about staffing shortages. And, and the Human Service Chamber almost has 140 nonprofits now that are part of it. Um, this is a challenge across the board. Um, there are not uh, – uh, one of our board members from EY uh, said he came across a stat that there are more job openings in the U.S. right now than there are unemployed people, and it's approaching a two-to-one ratio, which means there's going to be a shortage in every market, and and mental health is certainly uh, uh, not exempt from that. Um, to hire counselors or social workers, even case managers, has been challenging. Everybody's looking. Um, it's just a, a very difficult time out there, particularly when we recognize and know, because we see the numbers, that mental health needs have escalated. Suicide rates have gone crazy, and we don't have enough professionals to address the problems in our community. This is a, a, a huge challenge. And it comes uh, as mental health issues were already bad to begin with, and in, in especially in areas where you're dealing with poverty that is such a driver of some of that stuff as well. Yeah, you know, you, you know, they, they, the stats for 2021 is like one in five people have a mental health issue that needs to be addressed. Um, the increase just last year was 1.5 million people um, it, over the numbers before, and, and, and suicide is mirroring that. This is, uh, uh, these are huge challenges. You know, uh, the, the pandemic brought in isolation. I was looking at the suicide rates across the country and where it's worse. And uh, the three top states were Wyoming, Montana, and Alaska. Now you look at isolation and look at the role that isolation plays um, in mental health and how that can be very dangerous. And when when we try to put together plans for individuals dealing with anxiety and depression and bipolar, and those are the most common things, we always look at developing a, a support network for them. Um, I find it very interesting that the three states with the highest suicide rates are the three states that really population is so sparse. And yeah, that is interesting. What you know, that isolation just doesn't speak well for us. 
And we have these situations, too, where we hear a lot of people talking about little kids, you know, three, four, five years old, who have for a while there, they couldn't go to child care and all that type of thing. And also the wearing masks, which uh, hindered their development speech-wise and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, if you think about it, when you're talking about three, four, and five-year-olds, so let's just talk about a five-year-old. Um, that means 40% of their life really was raised under this mass pandemic kind of thing. That, that's really different, and it really is the last, that, that 40% of their life is, a, is the part that they remember the most. I mean, this is a, that's a weird construct when you really look at that and how that has formulated things. I mean, there's been very positive things that we've seen come out of it. Um, we see many families who uh, uh, got to be able to spend time together, get to know each other, actually, and, and improve their relationships. We also were challenged by the fact that some of the people we serve aren't in the, the safest situations. It was my frontline staff who two months into the pandemic, so even before, way before vaccinations, said we have to get back out there. Um, we have to go back out there and check in our kids because they're not necessarily in the best situations. That means that they're safe. You know, we have trauma programs that address uh, uh, our promises programs for survivors of sexual abuse. Um, Comps is children of murdered parents and siblings. Our vocal program deals with uh, kids that, that are stuck in domestic violence situations. Um, uh, these are highly toxic, highly critical areas that have to be addressed. And, and, and Dave, believe me, we're not isolated. All the mental health agencies, we're dealing with these ki- types of things. Um, but that isolation brings two things. It, it, it can be good for families, but it also can be uh, uh, at risk. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. In terms of referrals from schools and all that, are those running higher than they normally would be, or how, how is all that going? I'm going to tell you right now, and this is the truth across the board, uh, one of the stories that you sent me kind of talked about it, too. Um, our wait list has been, uh, this is the biggest wait list we've had in the 30 years that I've been here. Wow. And that's just a blatant truth of where things are at right now. The need is great. And we do not have all the people we can we we have, um, and we're actually in better shape than a lot of other agencies. Um, uh, uh, we just don't have the capacity to serve them. There are other people, uh, even bigger places, that aren't even taking referrals, and they're referring to us. And it's almost like stop that. <laughs> like we, we can't handle what we got, and and if you can't, I mean, so we're all in the same boat. Um, and there's not really an easy, clear answer right now. And that just means people are going to uh, continue with unresolved issues. How much of these unresolved issues, especially with kids, will resolve themselves if we can return to more of a normal lifestyle? Or are they to the point to where they do need therapy or, or more? You know, my hope is that some of it, because of the lack of isolation, will start to open things up. Uh, my fear is when uh, some things um, aren't addressed, the longer they, the, the more enduring they become, um, the more stuck at times people can become, or uh, the more it can become uh, uh, worse. So we really don't know. I mean, these are our new changing times for all of us, but we do know um, that when the need is there, we have to address these issues, and particularly for young people. So here's a big question out of the blue for you. <laughs> Has the pandemic and also the uh, political bickering that developed out of it for, you know, things that would have seemed impossible before, like whether the virus is real or whether mask wearing works or not, or whether it's a freedom issue, all of that, in addition to the isolation, the uptick in violence that we're seeing in major cities everywhere, is society itself becoming abnormal or, you know, what's happening? Yeah, I hope this is not the new norm. 
you know, you can point fingers at, at one side against the other. It really doesn't matter to me. I think at a point um, we have to just decide to be human towards each other, and, and um, that's not happening. And that's difficult, and it's difficult uh, when everything is so divisive and everything is so combative. And, you know, hopefully as we start to come out of this, some of it may start to – I mean, you're always going to go back to uh, – um, you're, you're going to draw a little bit back towards the norm. It, it, it just is a, a natural thing that, that just happens. And uh, But we've moved so far um, into different directions. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where we land. It's, it is interesting because, you know, you look back and 9-11 was a, a very unifying moment for America. So was the, the time of the first war with Iraq. That was another time when America pulled together. Americans are pulling together around Ukraine and the situation with Russia. But when we went through the pandemic, it began to tear the country apart at a time when you thought it would have unified us. Right. Um, and quite frankly, I think that uh, some people just use that difference as a political launching point. Um, it had nothing to do with humanity. It had everything to do with a, a, a truly, in a sense, a narcissistic kind of uh, perception and approach to um, the whole issue situation and issue. I read an interesting article before about, um, or just last week about, um, we, you know, we always talk about narcissism from an individual standpoint, but talking about it on a more macro perspective of um, national narcissism, um, and we've certainly seen some of that. The, the impact of the coronavirus has kind of been uh, left behind a little bit. 37,000 Ohioans have died and more than uh, 8,000 since the beginning of this year. It may not seem like it because the pandemic has been receding, but it, it's still significant. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and let's talk about each time one of the, that, these all represent families. Right. I mean, these are individuals. They're not objects. You know, it, it, these are metrics, and we've gotten so used to them that sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these are people. These are individuals. These are families. Um, and and um, that's that's just painful. It's disruptive. Um, and, and it actually can, can raise an awful lot of fear and anxiety and depression uh, across the board and, and contribute to what we already have as a national problem. Eighty-seven percent in Ohio who have died have been age 60 or up. Those are grandparents, many of whom these days were taking care of their grandkids. Right. We, we have many. That's why in our new model that we are, are, are pushing out in Kimberly, it is a multi-gen model because, uh, you know, we have programs that 30 percent of, of our kids are being raised by grandparents. And I don't know that people ever stop to consider that that's a huge number. You know, that, that's a lot. Uh, and, and, and for various different reasons, it's, it's the best situation for, for uh, those kids. We have to find a way to be more supportive of those types of unique family situations. Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more information about your agency, Dwayne, give the website again. Uh, they can check us out at dfyf.org. If you're in, in crisis, um, it's uh, 614-294-2661. All right, Dwayne, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNSFM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective. <laughs>